to LifeSide Beat. I'm your host, Shubham Chatterjee. In this episode, I'm so excited to sit down and chat with Dr. Ali Bey Bahani, a general partner at New Enterprise Associates. NEA is a global VC firm founded in 1977 with over 25 billion in assets under management and over 300 active investments. Dr. Bey Bahani has been with NEA since 2007, focused on healthcare and life sciences investments, spearheading over 40 investments, including biotechs like Adaptimmune, CRISPR Therapeutics, RA Pharma, and many more. Prior to NEA, he held positions at the medicines company, Morgan Stanley and Lehman Brothers, and conducted virology and proteomics research at NIH and Duke University. Ali earned his bachelor's in biomedical and electrical engineering and chemistry from Duke University, his MBA from Wharton, and MD from UPenn School of Medicine. We had an amazing conversation. So please join me and Ali on LifeSide Beat. Ali, welcome to LifeSide Beat. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, super excited to do this. So let's begin with an icebreaker. It's a question we like to ask many of our guests just to start the conversation. What did you want to be when you were growing up and how did that lead you to where you are today? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think from early on, I, I always wanted to be involved in the healthcare field and wanted to be a doctor and physician. And so, you know, I mean, I think that was always sort of the primary interest. In high school, you know, I got really interested in like chemistry and math. This idea of biomedical engineering was kind of interesting. And when I went to Duke, you know, the biomedical engineering program was great. I also started doing a lot of uh, basic science research at the time. So, um, you know, initially at Duke, and I was actually in the chemistry department in a lab, but like we weren't actually doing any pure chemistry experiments. We had lab benches, but they were filled with computers. And at that time, it was sort of interesting um, being in a chemistry lab, but like doing no chemistry at all. And that eventually became termed, you know, structural proteomics. And then I was also during the summers working at the NIH um, doing research. So that got me kind of thinking, well, how do you sort of take something out of a lab and spin it out, get it funded, and then hopefully treat patients one day? And, and that's what sort of started to lead me down the business journey. I had never taken like a business course in undergrad or anything like that. You know, I, I sort of got into thinking about investment banking. I was actually going the senior year um, at Duke and I was going to the library to, to do some work. And I ran into um, a freshman year roommate of mine and he was going to this info session for an investment bank. And he was like, you know, there's free food. Why don't you come? And I said, all right, well, you know, free food. Why not? As I was kind of listening, you know, it's, I'd never heard of investment banking and it sounded really interesting. And so before I knew it, I was kind of, you know, all of those kind of lines started to converge. You know, I kind of got interested in, you know, investment banking. And I started to recruit for it. And, um, and I was fortunate to land a position to go work at Lehman Brothers doing um, healthcare investment banking at New York. That's kind of how it all started. And, um, and, you know, I was thinking of taking a year after I graduated off to go work at the NIH um, and then go to med school. That was the plan. But then figured, you know, you only live once. So why not, you know, take a year or two and go do something? And, you know, I figured I'd come back to, you know, applying to med school and, and medicine at some point. And one year turned into to two years um, and, and I finished the analyst program there and I really enjoyed it. Um, I was sort of interested in, in something that kind of combined you know, not just the finance business side of things, but also was maybe a little bit more involved with kind of the science part. 
in medicine part. And that's where sort of venture capital seemed interesting to me at the time. I remember um, I, I did apply to med school at that time. And, you know, it was sort of like at three in the morning after like doing what I was supposed to do at Lehman, you know, I, I would work on my applications and I was fortunate to get into Penn and and Penn was great about letting me think about like, what do I, you know, do I come the year after or defer? And then, you know, I, I started to look for venture capital positions as well. And I, uh, I found a position at Morgan Stanley Venture Partners and Penn was great about letting me defer. And so I did that, really loved the venture business. I mean, it was a great blend of all of those things of medicine, science, business, again, one year, then went to two years. And, and, and then when I went to um, ask for a third year deferral from Penn, at that point, they were like, it's, it's time to make a decision. Certainly the plan at that point was I'm coming to Penn and doing med school and, and you know, to be a physician. I think the thing for me was, you know, always just kind of doing what I was really passionate about and then not being afraid to go off the beaten path. Yeah. Similar to some of the other folks we've had on the podcast, leaders in the life sciences, there's this common theme, right, of just hunting down whatever interests you most and whatever you feel most passionate about. And it creates for a circuitous journey, but it also means that you can uncover some really interesting ground. And what really strikes me about your experience is that you stayed as, so to speak, an investor more throughout versus maybe a competing model where a lot of folks try to get operating experience before moving into venture capital. And I know that this is a question that a lot of young bio entrepreneurs are also asking themselves. So I'd be curious to get your take here. Given your experience of staying mostly on the investing side, what's your perspective on gaining that operating experience before moving into venture versus starting more on the investing side right from day one? Yeah, I think it, it is always, I mean, that's sort of the age old question of our great investors, do they come from the operating side or from the finance side? And I think the answer to that is yes on all of them, right? I mean, you know, sometimes I get asked, well, do you have to have an MD or PhD to do early stage biotech investing? And, and certainly what I tell people is, look, there are great investors who have MDs and PhDs, but there are also terrible investors who have MDs and PhDs. So just having an MD and PhD doesn't make you a great investor, right? And there is no set formula. There is no set, you know, right, you know, resume or path. I, I've always believed that like more varied experiences and more different experiences is only a good thing, right? I sort of think that there are great investors who, you know, from all different backgrounds and whether it's operating or finance and really just comes down to the individual more than anything, you know, comes down to intuition, you know, being able to, you know, see some things where others don't see where the science, you know, could go and, and then, you know, making good sort of bets and decisions. Gotcha. Definitely. I recognize it's probably not the simple, straightforward answer that some listeners might be looking for, but I agree that it's important to take into account that nuance. I know you spent the last decade, right, at NEA across 40 or more investments. And so I'd love to spend some time now on your personal investing approach. So broadly speaking, when you're talking to young startups with exciting biotech innovations, what do you look for? Like what makes a promising investment in your experience at a high level? For me, I think it always, like I, I like doing things that are transformational, could be big potential game changers within a space. And, and part of it is, I mean, that I always see the investment as a means to an end. It's not really what drives me, the financial part of it. Ironically, I mean, even though that's my job, like that's probably the part that I focus on the least. But the reason I love the VC stuff is from a high level, um, there are very few things where you can change how medicines practice and change standard of care. And it doesn't always happen, but when it happens, it's a pretty stunning thing to see 
And I've been fortunate to at least see it a few times. And so that's what drives me. The thing that I always look for is what, what's the unmet need that a drug or device is going after? And, and is there a, a real kind of need and pain point that can be solved? That's always the driver for me is, you know, will a drug or device solve a big unmet need and pain point and can it change standard of care? The art and the difficult part of the venture world is sort of seeing something that's maybe early that where there's maybe only preclinical data and extrapolating, so, you know, 10 years out in a clinical trial showing a meaningful difference versus standard of care. And that, that's the hard part, right, is trying to understand and predict that. Definitely. And I think that's an excellent segue, right, if we try to tackle some of those independent buckets. Right now, we've talked about a couple key areas, right? In terms of your personal investing approach, what is that unmet need, as you mentioned? And then what is the technology that could create those medicines that could then change the standard of care? And maybe we can add a third, maybe a bit more qualitative aspect around what is the team that is actually driving the innovation? And so if we take those one by one on the unmet need aspect, right, there's still so many areas of unmet medical need where innovation makes a difference. But at the same time, there are high value spaces and targets that often then become the focus of many different biotechs. So how do you assess whether the investment is targeting the right indication or use case when you have to balance that unmet need with, for example, competitive white space? I think that's always the tricky part. And, you know, certainly where there are areas that, you know, you see success, then all of a sudden you see a massive wave of companies sort of go after it, like CD19 CAR-T, like, it was great at the beginning where, you know, Juno and Kite and others were sort of blazing the trail, but then now you look at it and like everyone's going after CD19 CAR-T. And so, you know, I, I think the hardest part is um, trying to blaze that trail before anyone else sees that, um, that same trail and trying to be ahead. And that comes with imperfect information that you're looking at to figure out whether something's really going to work, kind of fill that pain point and, and treat that unmet need. And it's very qualitative. Like to me, the beauty of this business is you can take the same piece of information and show it to two different people. Eventually someone will be right. And so that the trick is being right more often than not. And, um, and I used to think that it's sort of pretty binary. You get up and roll the dice and hope, but you know, I've also learned that hope is not a great strategy in biotech because you know, you're going to revert to the mean and the mean's not pretty. It's almost like a poker tournament, right? There's a reason why you see, um, uh, like in a poker tournament, the same faces around the table. They're, they're not always in the final table, but more often than not that they're there and they all can have different strategies, right? But the fact is that the really good players and the, you know, like have a certain strategy that, that gets them there. Along the way, there's luck involved, right? But you have the right strategy. And I think biotech investing is very similar. Like there are people who have different, you know, ways of coming to an investment and different strategies, but the people who have good intuition about science more often than not are going to wind up, you know, being in, in great investments. And again, it's really hard because it's just, there is no single formula. There is, there is no magic to it. And it's just personal insight. The fundamental tenant I have, if something doesn't biologically make sense, whether it's a target in a disease process, then the chances of it working out are pretty low. Now that's a pretty high level thesis to have, but it's, it's really helped me over time. And sort of is the guiding principle that, like if I don't believe the target or that device or that drug is really intervening at the right place in the biology, in the pathophysiology of a disease, then it's likely not going to work. That's again, a hard thing because you're never going to have perfect information about that target. Um, but that, and that's the art 
I wish I could tell you there's quantitative and you can sort of boil it down to a formula, but I think that's the art of trying to predict what a drug or device will do in the future. I like the way you sort of align or rather characterize it's as much art as science. And I think that definitely comes into play in terms of understanding the unmet need and whether the technology meets it. And actually on the technology front, as you yourself mentioned, one of the unique challenges of life science investing is that uncertainty early on, right? Around the probability of success. And that also means you get a lot of me too technologies. So I guess one, how do you think about separating the me too innovations from the true, true disruptors? And two, how do you think about de-risking the biotechnology in the diligence? Yeah, I think um, I tend to gravitate towards things that are less me too, that are more game changing, uh, but that comes with more risk. And so I like to do things that aren't just incremental. So I'll give you an example. Like when I first came back to NEA in kind of the late 2000s, I wasn't actually looking at any oncology investments. And what got me to come back to looking at oncology? Well, I mean, interestingly, like you know, a few years later, you know, you started to see things in the cell therapy space, right? To me, it was a big game changer because you weren't talking about another month or two of progression-free survival. You were talking about taking an eight-year-old that had four or five kilograms of tumor and getting a clean scan four weeks later. Like that, it seemed like a game changer, right? And that's what sort of got me back and interested in saying, all right, I am interested in these kinds of things within oncology. And so we started to look at the cell therapy space. And so, but everyone has their own sort of flavor of like what gets them excited. For me, that's, I like doing things that aren't just incremental, but big step forward. And then how do you sort of diligence that? Well, I think that's the hard part, right? The whole diligence process is to try and assess, you know, we're always going to be taking some risk, right? But the worst risk to take is one that you didn't know before you made the investment. The whole diligence process is basically to figure out like what are the risks that you're taking um, so that you're cognizant of it and, and are they ones that you're willing to take and there are going to be some risks that you are willing to take and there are going to be some risks that you aren't willing to take and that's a different equation for everyone and you're trying to assess okay based on where you know a drug or device is what information is available sometimes you know you're lucky and there's clinical data clinical data always makes things more murky, right? So sometimes having more data is uh, is harder than if you had no data and you can just believe this thing's definitely going to work. A lot of it is just looking at pieces of data and trying to connect dots and say, okay, like I think based on sort of this target in the pathophysiology of the disease, this drug or device, and based on sort of intervening at that at that node, will this have an impact on a disease process? in a clinical trial that we haven't designed today and won't design for a few years. And, you know, with people that we don't know, we don't have today, but uh, that we're going to have to hire to do it and hopefully design the right trial. Will it work? And I think that's kind of what you're trying to figure out in the diligence processes. What's the risk in trying to get to that? And are those risks that you're willing to take? For sure. Yeah. And I think what so far we've covered some of the harder science aspects, right, around the unmet need and around the technology itself. And so I'm curious around some of the more, well, all of this is is a bit of art and science, but around the human capital side of things, are there certain qualities in the founder or the leadership team that you feel are critical, particularly those that you think might sometimes be overlooked or undervalued by some investors? 
Yeah. And, you know, like out of all the things that you can diligence for a given opportunity, I think the hardest one is the people team part of it. But I think the part that's really is kind of the last piece that comes together for most people doing VC stuff is how do you assess whether this person or this team is the right one to back? Let's be honest, like in an hour presentation, they're going to put their best foot forward, right? They're always going to say that, you know, they have a world-renowned team and SAB and, and, you know, great founders and all that always happens, right? But then the reality is, you know, you have to decide, like, is this person, is this team one that you're willing to back that you think can to show that that drug or device can change standard of care? It's such a subjective and murky thing as well, which makes it hard. You know, when I was sort of coming up in the VC business, the thing that, you know, you probably get told most as well, back people who've had success before. And there is some truth to that, right? Because, you know, they've been successful before, so they've sort of played the game. They sort of know what needs to happen to get something successful. But the thing I've learned is I, I love backing people who just are passionate, have that fire, have that sense of urgency. And oftentimes, you know, again, not, and I'm going to make some general statements that probably are too general, right? But I, I found that, you know, I love backing first-time entrepreneurs. They're willing to run through walls. They have that fire. They have that sense of urgency. They have that drive and they want to be successful and they're going to do everything they can in their power to be successful. And so that's why like, I love backing first-time entrepreneurs. Now that's also hard because unless you know the person, right, again, they're going to hold it together in the hour presentation pretty well. And so, you know, you have to kind of, you know, have a gut feel for whether you think that person is the right person to, you know, has the right experience and has that drive and sense of urgency to make something successful. And again, that's that's not an easy thing to figure out. I have found, you know, unfortunately, like you know, we all want to like try to make things quantitative, but it's inherently, this one's even you know more of an art than a science. And I found usually that my gut feel on, you know, on interacting with a person is usually right. Whatever that gut feel is. And, and again, it's very nebulous, but usually your gut feel is, is usually right about a person. And, and so, so for me, you know, again, I, it's something that I love to do you know, it would be great to go and back someone who's had a lot of success and they're able to raise money a lot easier than someone who hasn't had that. But I just, for me, it's just something that I, I love doing and, and, you know, doing whatever I can to help them get to where they want to get and, and be successful. And when that happens and seeing that, it's great. These investments take a long time, but it's really satisfying when you can change standard of care, or we can help someone achieve the success that they wanted to achieve. What we've covered so far in that investing approach, creating those medicines that transform the standard of care, whether first by you know, selecting the right unmet need, having the right technology, and then having the right team. With this approach and framework in mind, is there any particularly notable or memorable or you know, even exciting investment that really ticks some of these boxes that come to mind? Um maybe the one kind of investment that sort of stands out, you know, was this company called uh, Nevro. And, and this was a device company in the spinal cord stimulation space. You know, the reason it was sort of, it was interesting because, you know, the spinal cord stimulation space had been a space that had been around a long time and it was dominated by kind of three big medical device companies, Boston Scientific, Medtronic, and, and Abbott, um, St. Jude. Those three companies had grown that space for, you know, people who had chronic back pain or, or refractory um, pain to a one and a half billion dollar market. And, and, you know, and I think that was interesting. You know, we had sort of seen this company, Nevro, which was developing this high frequency stimulation. Most of the current traditional spinal cord stimulation is low frequency. 
and you know usually get what they call uh, paresthesia, so numbness and tingling, and you get kind of the, the pain relief, but you have this numbness and tingling. And and never was you know it it sort of come across this high frequency stimulation pattern that allowed them to get pain relief without these paresthesias, which seemed totally contradictory to, to everything that everyone knew in the space. And, and I remember when we were doing diligence on it, everyone said the same thing about it when you asked them, well, what do you think about sort of the early Nevro data? And they would say, well, it's great, but it's just too good to be true. And usually when something's too good to be true, it's usually not true. But for me, you know, like we, we did a lot of work around sort of understanding the market and, and pain is notorious for, you know, an area where um, there's a big placebo effect. You know, it was just, it was hard from that perspective because, you know, even though it looked interesting, it was just everything told you you should run the other way. The interesting thing for me, I had a, a friend actually who um, I went to business school with who was in, in the class after I was named Rami Elgendor. We'd known each other from Wharton. He went to JJDC after he graduated to do venture capital. So we, we had sort of stayed in touch because we were both looking at interesting device opportunities. And then eventually he went to go become the chief business officer at Nevro. And honestly, for me, he was the kind of person who like I, I wanted to back, right? I mean, he had just sort of that drive and that sense of urgency. And so all the diligence we did sort of told us we should sort of run the other way. I mean, it was interesting device could be a game changer, but the chances of it working, like seemed it was going to be difficult. But, you know, primarily the reason I decided to do that was because of the relationship that I had with Rami and he, and, you know, and that was, was not a, a no brainer investment, but was one of these where, you know, we, we invested. And then I think the best part of it for me was just getting a chance to work with him. You know, he eventually became CEO of the company, took the company public, or, you know, we got the device approved. It did work um, in, a, in a randomized trial, you know, changed standard of care in the spinal cord stimulation space, and then grew the company to be, you know, 400 million in revenue and close to a thousand people. And so, that just was a gratifying experience where it's brought all of those pieces together and, you know, investing in and going on that journey with Rami was probably the best part of, I think, that investment. Amazing. And it's interesting also to see how that experience lines up with that framework right around the unmet need and technology and people. And so that gives us a sense of what a winner looks like, right? But I'd also be curious to learn about those who don't necessarily make the cut. You've run this play, so to speak, a lot of times. And so I'd love to know on the flip side, what are some of the most common reasons early bioentrepreneurs maybe fail to raise the capital or receive the valuation they want? What are some of the most common mistakes made? I always tell people like the investing part, that's the easy part. You can take anyone off the street, give them some money and they'll find some investment. The hard part starts after because then you have to live with the investment. And so I think the thing though that that I think is is hard to come back from is you know, one where maybe you don't have the right leader or the right culture in a company. It's just hard. You know, there's something when something go, you know, when, when things go bad, if you have the right people and the right culture, they're going to figure it out. You know, you give them the space and the time, they're going to work hard and they're going to try and run through walls. And, and sometimes, you know, like despite that, you know, maybe it's not solvable, but a lot of times it is solvable. Take that same situation and, and then parachute a team that maybe, you know, like they don't really work well together or you get a phone call from a recruiter and they're, they're willing to take it because they're not happy. Then in that situation, that team isn't going to get there. And so I think so much of it comes down to kind of the culture of the company, you know, having people who really have that sense of urgency and, and that partly 
shaped from the leader at the top, but then also shaped by the other employees. And so I've always found that teams that have infectious spirit um, can overcome a lot if, um, if they have it. And if they don't, then, you know, it gets hard. Definitely, definitely wise words for, I think, our listeners who are trying to start their own biotechs to keep in mind and think about as they engage with investors themselves. Uh, So I really appreciate your feedback there. I'd like to pivot a bit now and take a step back. Looking at VC investing today, there's so much capital that's flowing in, right? I think it's fair to say that the investing landscape is exploding. We're seeing check sizes that are uh, increasing. The valuations keep climbing. The time between rounds are shrinking. And given the state of VC investing, particularly, I think, in biotech, what do you think is driving this market activity? Is it macroeconomic factors? Is it a step change in the innovation? What's going on from your perspective? Yeah, I do think innovation certainly is a big part of what we've seen over the last decade. There have been a few things that have kind of gone in, in the right direction for, for healthcare. So one, I think technology has advanced. Six, seven years ago, the idea of using a cell to, as a medicine or the idea of you know, using like CRISPR-Cas9 to, to edit someone's DNA, like that didn't exist. And so to me, like the, the time that we're in is amazing because you have seen sort of a lot of these new therapeutic modalities outside of small molecule and antibodies that we didn't have that now allow you to do something different, to be able to go after targets that maybe you couldn't go after with a small molecule or therapeutic or to do it in a different way. And so I do feel like we've been in a period and we are still in a period where, you know, the innovation is happening. And a lot of that is based on learnings from like the 1990s, right? These advances are all because of advances made 20 years ago or so. And so, uh, and I think that's going to continue. So I think that's good. I think we've just been in a pretty amazing time. And I think because of that, you've seen investors who maybe weren't in, you know, investing in healthcare sort of rotating in. That's definitely kind of spurred some of what's happened over the last decade. There's definitely some, you know, real reasons for why we've seen sort of the interest in healthcare expand and, and why you've seen the capital inflows coming in. Um, you know, now having said that, what always worries me is you see sort of a mass uh, of people sort of head in one direction. It sometimes does worry me too, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, like you can get to, you know, a point where there's a rational exuberance and you have too much capital. And I think it's, it's always this tricky balance. But I, I do think that despite all of that, there's been true fundamental reasons for why we've seen the the biotech IPO market and the capital inflows coming into biotech. Got it. And that's actually a great lead-in to the next point, which is this disconnect might be a too strong a word, but separation between the public and private markets, especially in biotech, where we see a lot of value at least being generated or perceived within the private markets, whereas biotechs in the public markets have been relatively hurting, right? Just over the past year, the XBI index is down 30%. And so how do you reconcile this public and private market phenomenon? And does this imply anything around a biotech bubble potentially? Um, I mean, I think, you know, we've had even in the last decade, even though like biotech has sort of been up and to the right, I mean, there have been a few periods of softness. To the end of 2014, you know, there was some softness at the um, in beginning of 2018, the end of 2019. And each of those times, though, you know, like the, the softness in the public market was fairly transient. And so after that kind of transient pullback, then you saw more capital coming in and, and you know, more in, in valuations and more companies raising rounds. 
you know, this one does feel a little different in that um, it's been, you know, feels a little bit more sustained. And I think, you know, everyone's been sort of looking to see what the beginning of this year really looks like. I mean, if you go back to 2019, that Q4, there was there was a fair amount of softness. But then when we came back at the beginning of 2020, you had kind of a wave of companies go public and that did well. I think, you know, we're, right now we're sort of in this time period, people are trying to assess, was the softness that we saw at the end of last year going to be continue? Or is it sort of like 2019 where, you know, it was transient? It's hard to say, right, from where we sit today. I always think, you know, like, you know, there's always sometimes kind of expansion and contraction of capital um, at different points in time within a, a given market. And so, you know, sometimes you expand too much and you see that contraction. Sometimes you're 2008, 2009, and after that, it probably contracted too much. And then you saw, you know, more capital coming back. And there's, it sort of goes back and forth. The public market's usually a good indicator for where sentiment is. The private market always isn't, right? I mean, it just, sometimes it can be, but like in periods like this, just because the private market's doing well, that could just be that, you know, there's usually a, a six to nine month lag before the private market catches up to the public market. And so I think we're sort of in this period where I think we're trying to feel out what is the next, you know, near term look like. There probably is going to be softness. I mean, the softness seems sustained. Um, that probably then will reverberate into the private market. But but I think that's okay. I mean, I you know, I, in, from my perspective, you know, there is going to be continued need for innovation. There is going to be continued need for getting new drugs and devices that change standard of care. You know, maybe the massive capital inflows that we saw over the last couple of years was too much, right? And so maybe that comes back. But I don't think that means that the right companies, good technologies aren't going to get funded. It just may not be easier as easy, but by the same token, I'm a big believer that, you know, innovation will continue and, and good companies and teams and technologies will continue to be funded. And with this VC investing landscape in the background, then where you have some of the softness, but at the same time, you have the good companies, as you say, with the right innovations, still getting the funding that they need. How do you believe NEA is adjusting its investment approach or strategy to respond to this landscape or even to capitalize on these trends? You know, I think the nice thing about being here and, you know, so at Morgan Stanley Venture Partners, we did mostly late stage investing. And there were points in time in the market where doing late stage investments makes sense. And there were points in time where it didn't, but, you know, but you kept on doing it anyway, because that was your set strategy with your limited partners. And so that always was a little bit kind of a head scratcher. Like if you know you're investing at a time where you're sub-optimizing the outcome, that's probably not a good thing. And so I think the nice thing about NEA and being here is just we're stage agnostic, therapeutic area, therapeutic modality agnostic. And so the beauty of it for someone like me, you know, given that that strategy is we can sort of like I can shift where I'm investing depending on where I think the returns are going to be best over the next three to five years. I think the nice thing is we can sort of invest across the continuum and depending on where, you know, valuations are, where opportunities are, we'll sort of shift what we're doing um, between kind of different stages and sectors. And there are very few places that allow you to do that. And, and NEA is one of them. And then, you know, because of the capital base, you know, whether we're doing a small seed series A investment or we're doing a later stage, you know, growth round, you know, it's just we're able to support our companies from kind of the beginning to the end. Definitely. Yeah, I think it's something that does truly separate NEA from some of the other VC firms out there. And as we're talking about now, these are definitely exciting times in terms of being in biotech, being in the life sciences, taking a look at what that investing landscape looks like and, and how it evolves. So thank you so much for sharing your journey and your perspectives. 
Before we go, LifeSide Beat also hopes to inspire the next generation of business leaders in the life sciences. So to wrap up, what advice would you leave our listeners with for those of us who are trying to break into life sciences, venture capital, and early stage investing? What I've found is, you know, the people who really want to do it and who are persistent about it eventually get there. Now it can, you know, some people are lucky in it, you know, after like a few months of looking, they find a job. Sometimes it takes going and doing something else. I'd say the people who really want to do it, who are persistent about it, um, but who are patient, I think eventually get there. And so, you know, I, I would say, I would just encourage people to, you know, not, uh, it, it can certainly be, you know, sometimes feel like it's never going to happen or it can be disheartening, but Eventually, I do think that people who really want to do it get there. And so just being persistent about it and patient, I think, are, are the things that I'd, I'd encourage people to keep in mind as they're searching. Definitely. Thanks. Wise words for sure. And, and really appreciate your time and perspective. Thank you so much, Ali. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. And uh, here's to looking forward and, and, and hoping that biotech and device uh, investing continues to, to, to take off. Thank you.